You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. So you're saying that his name is still celebrated, revered, revered in New York, in Columbia, in, at the University of Columbia. Columbia. No idea. But in Oakland. He's not exactly a household name. There's not streets named after Horns Carpentier. There's not a park named after there him. There's one in San Leandro. Oh, there's one. In, okay. So tell me a little <laughs> bit about why the, the founding father of Oakland, Oakland's first mayor, this titan of industry, right, right, right. why is his right. name relatively obscure? Okay. Okay. Oakland Daily Transcript, October 17th, 1877. If the early settlers had taken Horace W. Carpentier to a convenient tree and hung him, as they frequently threatened to do, the act would have inestimably been beneficial to immediate posterity. <sighs> it's pretty obvious that American politics are in bad shape. From Congress, all the way down to local school board meetings, you see people screaming, throwing temper tantrums, sometimes even threatening to kill each other. Depending on what side you're on, people blame social media, Fox News, Trump, woke divists, <laughs> even critical race theory, whatever. The only thing people seem to agree on is that politics is getting more vicious. But here's the thing. It's always been nasty. That clip you just heard a second ago was local historian Dennis Evanosky reading a newspaper article from the 1800s about how Oakland would have been better off if the town's first mayor had been murdered lynched and so he's a villain he's a villain why why do people hate him well i mean the, fortunately for him time is going on and people don't know that's why i'm around <laughs> before horace carpentier came to california oakland didn't exist people in san francisco just called the east bay contra costa which loosely meant the opposite shore and there were very few people living here. Horace arrived during the gold rush, but he wasn't looking for shiny nuggets. He had his eyes on something even more valuable, real estate. I just think Horace started off on the very wrong foot. He, he stole the, the little town of Contra Costa. And he was shameless about it. He was it. shameless. That's the thing. I mean, he really, not only was he getting away with this, right. he was smart enough to kind of pull it off, and he never slowed down. He, he would just go from people, one kind of con to the next. There are still people today, and I'm sure you and I can name a few of them, they, they don't care what, about what they do to other people. They just don't care. And, and I think this probably sums up Horace. He didn't care what he was doing to the, to the people who lived in the little town of Contra Costa. It, it, he know. wasn't even pretending like he was doing it no. for the people of Oakland. No, no, no. He, well, he wasn't. He was, doing, yeah. he was doing it for himself, and he was doing it, I mean... Some cities were founded by prophets, or warriors, or idealistic visionaries. Oakland was created behind closed doors as a get-rich-quick scheme by an unscrupulous lawyer. And once he got what he wanted, after he became absolutely, disgustingly rich, he never set foot here again. Well, except for a few times when he had to show up to court to deal with lawsuits. 
Maybe it's because I was raised Irish Catholic. But researching this story, I can't stop thinking about original sin. This idea that we've been doomed since the Garden of Eden, that we're all born with a curse that we'll never escape. Even if you're not religious, the feeling that there's a deep flaw at the very core of humanity, it doesn't feel too far-fetched. Some scholars say that original sin in the Bible is an allegory about the dawn of civilization when humans transitioned from nomadic tribes of hunter-gatherers to living in permanent settlements. If that's the case, then every new city is born in sin. Each new town spreads the curse one step further. I don't know. Maybe all cities don't fit that pattern. But Oakland certainly does. Horace Carpentier, our founder, our very first mayor, he was no angel. But he wasn't exactly a devil, either. The thing of it is, is that, is that there's nothing, as you say, nothing named for him. People want, want to forget about him, but he did spend his money the right way in, in, in the end. I can understand why generations of Oaklanders wanted to bury this name, to hide the messy, painful origin story of our town. But today, we're digging it up. Because like it or not, the ghost of Horace Carpentier still looms over us. You can even hear it if you know what to listen for. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. Oakland was officially incorporated as a town on May 4th, 1852. I asked historian Dennis Evanoski to describe what this place looked like in the years leading up to that, when this whole area was still just a cattle ranch owned by a single family, the Peraltas. It was uh, kind of hard to, to describe what it looked like other than to say, if you go out to Alamo and you see the grasslands and the trees out there, uh, in that area out there, that's what Oakland looked like. It was all grassland with a, a few maybe laurel trees and perhaps some cottonwood trees growing along the streams. And there was this morass of um, marshland that surrounded not only what became the Oakland Estuary, but also what became uh, Lake Merritt later on. Of course, there were also oak trees, lots of them. Where downtown is now, oaks were everywhere. And that was no accident. Acorns were one of the staple crops of the Ohlone people who lived here for thousands of years. And they'd set fires to encourage this landscape of useful grasslands and nutritious trees. But by 1840, Oakland was almost completely depopulated. Starting in the late 1700s, Spanish colonizers had rounded up all the native people they could get their hands on to work at the missions, like the ones in San Jose and San Francisco. The native people who weren't enslaved were either killed or fled. Some pretended to be Mexican 
and worked at the ranchos that replaced their villages. Luis Maria Peralta was given all the land from San Leandro Creek up to El Cerrito, from the bay up to the hills, as a reward for his service as a soldier to the Spanish crown. Even after Mexico gained its independence in 1822, Peralta held on to his ranch, and he eventually divvied it up between his four sons. They planned to carry on the family business, raising cattle, trading hides and tallow with the few merchant ships that would occasionally stop into the bay. But the Peralta's fortunes started to crumble in the early 1840s. That's when white men from France and Ireland and England began trickling into the hills to cut down redwood trees that had stood for millennia. By the end of that decade, word of the gold rush was spreading across the globe and the trickle of trespassers became a flood. Within a few more years, the Peraltas would lose almost everything. Well, they wouldn't exactly lose it. Their land, their fortune, it was taken. Some might say stolen. And one of the biggest thieves, or entrepreneurs, depending on your perspective, was a young lawyer fresh out of Columbia Law School named Horace Carpentier. <laughs> Look, one of the funniest things about this guy is how in virtually all the histories that mention him, the authors go out of their way to talk about how much people despised him. Here's a description from an architecture book called The Ultimate Victorians, written by a very prim and proper lady named Eleanor Ritchie. Eleanor writes, Unquestionably, the most troublesome of the East Bay's misfortunes was a long persisting one in the person of one Horace Carpentier, a New York lawyer who practiced briefly in San Francisco before descending upon unsuspecting Oakland. With his slender figure, blue eyes, prim mouth, and thin aristocratic nose, Carpentier looked the consummate gentleman, which aspect altogether with his post of willing helper gained him entry wherever he wished. Having gained entry, he proceeded to quietly confiscate whatever it was he wanted. <laughs> she goes on to describe him as slippery and evil. Is that a fair assessment? You be the judge. So one of the things that they did was they came over from San Francisco and they being his, the, the trio of, of Carpentier and Moon and, 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 and Adams. Who eventually essentially became like the founding fathers right. of Oakland. Yeah. And what they did was they just helped themselves to 160 acres each. So they each helped, helped just took the square miles. So they got to what was then Contra Costa, right. looked at this land, right. knew that the Peraltas legally owned the land, they and yeah, exactly. but they just decided, whatever, they we're going to chop this squatters. up. And okay, so they're squatting they on were, the land. There were squatters. And then, and then even though uh, Horace was not a Catholic, uh, their stories, partly truth, partly fiction, as I like to say a lot of times about him, where he went and visited the Peralta home, uh, took his rosary with him, 
they said they would say a rosary, and he was kneeling. He he dressed apparently like some kind of a reverend. And uh, the, one story says that he was saying a rosary together, and and Horace is kneeling on the floor, and they went and got a cushion for him, and he refused to use the cushion because it, <laughs> because he did that. So he really befriended them. So he possibly dressed up like a priest right. to visit the Peralta family to right. really get in their good graces, right. 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 and right. Right. using this cover. Right they entrusted him right. yes. and so he became their lawyer representing them in their legal this cases exactly to defend their land at the same time that he's squatting on yeah. it this is, this is exactly what happened he, he he's representing them in his own interest not in their interest so he he takes like i say part of the land along with along with adams and along with moon did horace really dress up like a priest to swindle land out of the peraltas we'll never really know for sure all these stories depend on whose version you believe. In some accounts, Horace and his partners, Edson Adams and Andrew Moon, paid rent for the 160 acres they each took. But whether they leased the land or squatted it, one thing they definitely didn't have the right to do was lay down a street grid and start selling plots of land to other settlers. But that's exactly what they did. And some of those settlers chopped up their parcels and sold it to other settlers. And pretty soon, a town that stretched from about First and Broadway north to about where City Hall is now, for a few blocks east and west in either direction, started to rise amidst the oak groves. But in the end, two things happened. The squatters came in, and the Peraltas were powerless to do anything with them. And they were able to sell some of their land. But the, the, the Americans had this attitude that this land didn't belong to anybody. And this is what went to the courts. They had, the Peraltas had the deed to the land from the, from the Spanish government in, in Mexico. It was given to them by the Spanish government. Right. They held it right. through Mexican independence. Right. And then after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, right. exactly. under exactly. American law, they were right. supposed to be, you right. know, respected as property owners and American right. citizens. Yeah. But that's not what happened, yeah, right? The, the court said the treaty required them to prove their ownership. Mm. And this is all the doings of the courts. And over time, while they could prove their ownership, the Americans, as I call them, for want of a better word, they didn't care. They came here and they just stole the land. They just squatted on the land and stole the land. This is what Horace did. Looking back through history, right. it seems like he had a very clear vision for what he wanted to do. He did. He and did. part of that vision meant incorporating right. Oakland as a city right. Right. and installing right. himself essentially as the very first mayor. So right. Right. how did that happen? What was the process for Oakland becoming a town? And my understanding is that a lot of the people who were living here at the time were a little bit surprised well, when yeah, he did this because uh, he sort of did it without telling anyone what he, was happening. He used his position. Okay, I'm sorry to cut off Dennis, but I've got to because he's an expert. And the way that he answered that question was very accurate and very complicated. So I'm going to simplify. Horace was really good at two things. Writing up incredibly complex legal agreements with all kinds of hidden clauses that he could use to his advantage. That was the first thing, his tricky legal skills. And the second thing he was good at was making friends with politicians, which was helpful because just like now, sometimes power 
and having powerful friends is more important than being on the right side of the law. Let's take a step back and look at the big picture. After California became a state in 1850, the state government didn't see its job as like providing services to benefit all the common people. The guys who became senators, the first governors, etc., they went into politics because they saw California as a big, tasty pie, and they wanted a fat cut. California politics started out as a raw power grab. By coming here from New York with a fancy law degree, right as this feeding frenzy was starting, Horace put himself in the right place at the right time, and it didn't take long for him to make friends with the right people. That's how a guy who'd only been in California for two years was able to secretly persuade the state legislature to pass a bill that transformed an unincorporated little village of squatters into a brand new town. But even the other politicians didn't know some of the details that slippery old Horace buried in the fine print. You gotta remember, these guys who lived in Contra Costa, they just wake up one day and they get told they live in the town of Oakland. And, and they had no say. And speaking of elections, uh, there's stories about how when Oakland, when uh, Horace Carpenter was quote unquote elected as Oakland mayor, right, there right. was more votes cast. Right, there cast. was 150 something votes and only like 100 people, uh, there was only like 100 people around that could vote and there were 300 votes in his yeah. favor. Three times as many people voted for Horace than, than, than voted all, uh, overall. <laughs> so this was not exactly a free and fair no, election by any means. All... Ever since the first dot-com bubble in the 1990s, people have compared Silicon Valley's tech boom to the gold rush. People coming to the Bay Area from all over the world to get rich quick, it's an obvious analogy. But the similarities go deeper. It's not just the money. It's the move fast, break things mentality. It's the sense that if you get big enough, fast enough, you're above the law. And it's the backlash. The regular folks getting screwed by these rich guys weren't happy about it then either. Now, in 1853, he builds a house on what is now 3rd and Alice Streets. If you believe the stories, and I do, uh, the bottom part of the house was all barred so no one could come in and get them. Horace always had a dog, and I believe it was a terrier, so the dog would bark whenever anybody would come around. It, it, that's right on the marshland there. He had a way cleared into the marshland, and he had a boat ready to, to escape in case anybody wanted to come after him, and they did come after him. In the book Oakland, The Story of a City by Beth Bagwell, the author writes, quote, If the drama of Oakland's history were to be enacted on the stage, the entrance of Oakland's first mayor, Horace W. Carpentier, would be greeted with hisses and boos. <laughs> and that might be putting it mildly. Oakland had its very first riot in 1853, just one year after it became a town. And the target of the angry mob was, you guessed it, Horace. Why were folks infuriated enough to riot? Yeah, Horace swindled the Peraltas and rigged Oakland's first election, but honestly, 
That's not what made him a villain. People hated him because he stole the East Bay's most valuable real estate, the waterfront. The way he did it was complicated. It involved legalese and signing over property to his relatives, and it ended up going back and forth in the courts for decades. But Horace was a smart guy. He locked this deal up tight. And once the people of Oakland realized what he did, they were furious. The mayor suddenly has a monopoly on all the revenues collected from shipping and ferry service. He controls and makes money off every boat, everyone coming in and out. Yeah, he did. But that wasn't enough for Horace. At the time, the boundary of Oakland was a channel that flows from Lake Merritt out to the Oakland estuary, behind where Laney College is now. If you're trying to picture it, basically everything east of the lake was a collection of small, unincorporated villages. As these towns were growing, people needed an easy way to get across this channel, because Lake Merritt was a huge tidal slough back then, so it would have taken hours to go all the way around. Now, a bridge to Oakland seems like pretty crucial public infrastructure. But what does Horace do? He makes it a private toll bridge. As Beth Bagwell puts it in her book, quote, Early Oaklanders fumed, but once again, Carpentier held all the cards. He and his associates were collecting a fee on virtually every passenger, animal, or item of cargo that entered or left Oakland. So you can understand why an angry mob stormed his house. And here's the hilarious thing. Being the target of a riot might have taught some men a lesson, but not Horace. He sued the city of Oakland, the city he was running, over damage caused to his house during the uproar. And he won a settlement of $4,500, which was a lot of money back then. And I just want to break down this scenario even further because it's so insanely brazen. Oaklanders were so mad at their mayor for enriching himself by exploiting his position that they had a riot. And his response is to milk them even harder. This was the founding father of Oakland. In the 1850s, Oakland was tiny. Only a few hundred people lived here. Most of the action was up in the hills, which were unincorporated, because that's where the lumber mills were. Oakland might have been the Wild West, but up by where Redwood Regional Park is now located, that was like the wild, wild, wild west. Way more people lived up there than in the town. I mean, just imagine the kind of crew it takes to chop down a 300-foot-tall tree without power tools. Usually, the townsfolk in Oakland and the lumberjacks in the hills kept their distance. But occasionally, there were conflicts. They used oxen to get these to get these redwoods down to the port. Somebody stole and butchered one of the oxen. And all the guys who lived in the redwoods came down into Oakland and said they were gonna burn the place down if they didn't you know, compensate them for the oxen that was stolen. Not just, it wasn't meat to them, it was, the, it was their way of getting the logs in, into the estuary. And who steps in and sells it all at Horace, the story goes. Horace stepped in, apparently gave them the money they wanted and they all went back up into the into the into the redwoods and horace horace uh, calmed them all down uh, all the redwood guys 
and uh, and they went back into the hills. They got their money or whatever they got in, in return for the oxen that they that they took. So, I think that story is important because it shows that Horace wasn't afraid to go toe to toe with guys who could squash him. That experience came in handy when the Big Four came to town in the late 1860s. Right now, I'm going to do my best to condense about a book's worth of history into a paragraph or two. The most transformative thing that's ever happened to Oakland was the decision to make this place the terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad. It turned Oakland from a quiet little town into the second biggest city in California, practically overnight. Unless you wanted to spend months and months on a dangerous wagon trail, the railroad was the only way to move goods and people across the country by land. And the four guys who ran the Central Pacific Railroad Company, Stanford, Huntington, Hopkins, and Crocker, became four of the richest and most powerful men in the country, the big four. But before they could build the most crucial segment of the tracks, they had to come to an agreement with the man who owned the waterfront. And once again, Horace dealt himself the best hand. They get together and they form this waterfront company and Horace fixes it, the shares, in a very confusing way. But when you do the math, which these guys weren't doing, Horace and his brother Eric, his brother Edward owned 51% of the Oakland Waterfront Company. So this is the deal that makes Horace Carpentier from being a rich man to an astronomically an wealthy astronomically man. Wealthy. Absolutely, absolutely. Because this is right. like some of the most valuable property in right. the country now because right. he is in control right. or partially in control right. of the right. company that owns the waterfront right. where the tracks are being laid right. Right. that's just going to be right. bringing all the goods right. back and forth right. between the East yeah. Coast and the West Coast. Instead of enriching the people of Oakland, this backroom deal made a small handful of men who were already rich even richer. One source estimated Horace's fortune at $20 million, which adjusted for inflation, let's see. Well, that's what the Silicon Valley bros call fuck you money. After that, Horace did his best to never set foot in Oakland again. He moved back to New York and eventually ended up giving a big chunk of money to his old alma mater. So much money, in fact, that a few of the endowments he set up are still around. He has way too much money. And when you talk to the people today at Columbia, he is the biggest hero because he has a fund named for his brother James. He has a seat named for his brother Reuben. And he has another seat named for his brother, I forget the other one, there's three of them. Three endowments that still have millions, and, and uh, we talked to the people in Columbia, and they were totally shocked to know what Horace had done here. They had no idea. To them, Horace Carpentier, his name is enshrined there, and he's still beloved Horace, General Carpentier, by the way, because he was made a major general back in the day when they started the California. So, so they, they knew him as General Carpentier. Horace was hated in the city he founded. But back home, he was celebrated as a philanthropist. I guess reputation laundering is another thing that the gold rush and the tech boom have in common. But, uh, oh yeah, you know, I never explained how Horace got the people of Oakland to calm down a bit after that riot. 
See, as a part of the waterfront deal, he agreed to build a schoolhouse and a few wharves. In other words, he began developing. He didn't just start a regular ferry service. He created the demand that made people want to come to Oakland. He made this place a destination. And even though he got the richest, everybody else who owned property or ran a business in this fast-growing town, they rode the wave. They cashed in too. They might not have liked Horace, but they realized that killing him probably would have been bad for business. For better or worse, Horace Carpentier set Oakland on a course to becoming a city of industry. And in that sense, the monument to his legacy is the cranes that greet us as we cross the Bay Bridge, the blaring train horns that we hear echoing through the quiet nights, even the name of our town itself, a name that evokes everything that industry has wiped out. It all started with Horace. The end result was we have the Central Pacific Railroad coming here, being able to use the shoreline as the, for their freight and developing and all that. But without Horace, this none of this would have happened. Yeah, that we wouldn't be we wouldn't be benefit in the long run. It, 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 I guess specifically, right. what he did was fine. How he did it yeah. is it, it's how he made his enemies. Yeah. It's how he did it. Well, and I guess it all kind of depends, too, on what you would want to see in a city. If you want to see right. a right. industrialized right. waterfront yeah, that is, you know, bringing in a lot of revenue, a lot of businesses, right. you know, he is responsible for that. But if, for example, you want a shoreline that looks like a beautiful right. wetland, you know, pristine marsh. Right, right. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it didn't happen. Right. And, and they're never, ever going to be able to put it back. No. Yes. I mean, they're never going to, you can't put this back. Yeah. You can't, what, I mean, they basically stole the natural beauty and all the wildlife connected with it and all the, the birds and, and the, and the parkland we could have had is all under, under concrete and it's never going to go away. And the port of Oakland is there. I mean, right now it's just absolutely, I mean, I, I, I frequently drive. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For this episode, I want to give a big shout out to the staff at the Oakland History Center, at the main branch of the Oakland Library. And of course, I also want to give a shout out to everybody who is supporting this show on Patreon. Thank you so much. You guys are, are really keeping the show alive. If you want to donate to the show, you can support me by clicking on the link on the upper right-hand corner of my website, eastbayyesterday.com. Uh, if you can't afford to do that, I also appreciate it when folks share this podcast on social media. Uh, if you do that, tag me. You can find links to all my socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter on the site as well. Uh, last thing, I'm doing boat tours again in 2020. You can check out the updates section of my website for a link two tickets. All right, that's going to do it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.